It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. Before we kick off this podcast, I wanted to mention that this month, BBC Countryfile magazine is celebrating its 15th birthday. This is an exciting milestone for us, and I wanted to thank all our readers and listeners for helping us get this far. For those of you who do not already subscribe, we're offering all our podcast listeners a very special offer to celebrate with us. You don't want to miss it. Visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. That's podcast with an L, podcast. And you get 50% off your first six issues. Plus, you'll get a Stanley travel mug as your welcome gift, which is very useful when you're accompanying us on our many walks this winter. That's www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast. Find out more there and terms and conditions do apply. Now let's get on with this week's adventure. Hello and welcome to the podcast, the Nature and Countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. I'm Fergus Collins and welcome to a new season of mindful escapes into the green outdoors in search of wildlife and wilder people. And this episode is just that. We're heading off to the Inner Hebrides, to the island of Tyree, which is a stronghold of one of Britain's rarest and certainly strangest birds. Naturalist James Fair heads out into the wilds to find the corncrake with local expert John Bowler. It's a bird not famed for its looks, but as for its voice, well, that's something else. I've just stopped on the road, on the main road that drives up the length of Tyree in the Inner Hebrides. And I've stopped because there's some fabulous views of uh, the Outer Hebrides very far to the west of me. It's a beautiful, clear evening and you can see the outlines of the southern Outer Hebrides. I'm not quite sure which islands I'm looking at, but it's absolutely phenomenally clear and calm. Never see it this calm. The sun is going down. It's about eight o'clock in the evening. And if you can see a strange, hear a slightly strange hum in the background, that's the uh, community's wind turbine, uh, which goes around most of the year because it's always blowy here. Today, not too bad. It's maybe five or 10 miles an hour. But the reason I'm setting off somewhere is I'm going to the far um, western edge of the island, southwest uh, part of the island. And I'm going to meet a man called John Bowler. And together we're gonna go and hopefully find one of the UK's rarest birds. A bird, however, that has its stronghold here on the tiny island of Tyree. Tiny. Not, perhaps not tiny, but it's not big. And I'm hoping we're going to find this strange bird and certainly hear it, um, possibly see it. Seeing them is much harder. I've heard a few. I've been here four or five days and I've heard a few already, but I haven't seen any. And that bird is a corncrake, bird that would have been common throughout farmland and farmland throughout the United Kingdom. 
100 or 150 years ago, but now is incredibly rare, basically only found in Scotland. And with, I think, and we'll find out later, roughly five or 600 pairs here on Tyree, by far the most important place for the species now in the United Kingdom. But we'll find all that out later. I'll be on my way. Well, my name's John Bowler. Um, I'm the RSPB officer here on Tyree. Uh, I've been here 21 years. I actually came on a two-year contract to count corncrakes, and, well, 20 years later, I'm still here. You never left. No. Never. I can't imagine why. Well, it's just a fantastic place, isn't it? You can hear all the birds right now. It's just, yeah, a wonderful island, wonderful wildlife, very nice people, and it's just... Well, why go anywhere else? Yeah. yeah. Now, okay, so we're going to go and hopefully find some corncrakes. Mm. Corncrakes are incredibly rare now in the UK, yep. but they used to be a really common farmland bird, correct? Correct, absolutely. And so they were in every single county of the UK okay. um, 100 years ago. So what happened? So basically, uh, farming became modernised, um, particularly during the Second World War when we had to feed ourselves more. Uh, so a lot of people blame Hitler for this. Right, okay. Um, so we ended up uh, just modernising and mechanising and doing things much faster than we used to. And why did that do for corncrakes? So corncrakes need long vegetation throughout the summer in which to, to breed and feed and to hide. And um, with increasing mechanisation, things became faster. We fertilised fields, crops grew quicker, they got cut quicker. Right. Uh, so... Right now on the mainland, a silage field can get cut three times. Yeah. That gives no no time at all for a corncrake to do what it needs to do in that field. Yeah. Because they, they come in. So uh, what we should say is that they're migrant birds and they come from which part of Africa? I'm not sure. Okay. So uh, <laughs> we now know. Uh, so most corncrakes, the biggest uh, populations are in Russia oh. and Eastern Europe. Right. And they, we've always known, winter in East Africa and Central Africa. Right. However, having done some satellite tracking work yep. on the birds from coal, we now know that these special Hebridean birds go to West Africa. Okay. So something completely different. In fact, they use grasslands uh, in West Africa in Togo when they first arrive. Okay. And as those dry out, they then head east, fly across the Congo rainforest, and end up in grasslands on the east side of the Congo. Oh, for the, wow. For the midwinter period. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Which is, you know, crazy. And yeah. Even to the extent they're using grasslands that are kept open from forests by elephants, for right. example. So, okay. you know, really interesting kind of conservation. So they London, absolutely but... need grassland. They can't go in a forest. They, they won't go... No. And... Right. No, okay. very, very much a grassland species. Yeah, yeah. And then back, as they finish the winter, they come back through West Africa because those grasslands have greened up again right right it's a you know very precise migration yep. that they do and they don't spend long here uh no so the very first ones arrive in mid-april yeah um and then what we know is that they have a, a first brood yeah and by july that brood is on its way back wow they that goes they, they don't hang around that's They're amazing not with the parents they, yep. they just you know hardwired to fly south yeah they go yeah um and then the parents carry on so they have two broods occasionally three wow uh, but by the end of september early october they've all gone right okay and so why are they still doing okay or well on tyree so Tyree and some of the other Hebridean islands still have a more traditional form of agriculture. Um, here it's uh, predominantly crofting, uh, people raising livestock outside. Um, I can hear a corn crake. That's good. That's excellent news. <laughs> um, 
there we go. Um, yeah, so they're still keeping livestock in a traditional way. Yeah. Um, they're keeping back meadows either to graze later in the summer or to cut for silage. Mm-hmm. Um, even here, this, this idyll wouldn't happen. It doesn't happen by accident. So there's a lot of conservation work going in. Right. Agri-environment environment schemes, yep. which essentially pay crofters to do things slightly differently to what they would do otherwise. Keeping vegetation back till the 1st of August is key. Right. That yep. allows females to get two broods out. Sorry, when you say keeping vegetation back, you mean keeping it long? Keeping it yeah. long before they cut it. I mean, basically. I see a lot of... I mean, in the, we see this field here. Yep. There's uh, cows grazing. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of uh, yellow flag irises just kind of coming to the end of their, their blooms, aren't they? They're yes. just slightly, you know, going over now. And you can probably hear the cows. Yeah. Um, and yes, it's, the grass is quite long. So would you expect to, to, to have some corn crates so in there? So corn will still use a field like this it's, mm. got, it's got cattle in but there's plenty of other vegetation here it's a fairly unintensive system yeah so instead of all this being sprayed yeah and just having one species of grass lollium which is the usual thing yeah there's a whole range of yes. species here yeah uh, and that means a there's a lot of cover different heights yeah it's a it's a mishmash it's a, a mosaic of habitats yeah. which is really yeah. important yeah and also lots of insects yeah you know, lo- lots of invertebrates so is that is that what the corn crakes are eating yes yeah. So yeah. they, they they really need uh Lush vegetation that's full of insects. Yeah, um, beetles, and they're picking snails. it up off the off the ground, off the ground, and yeah. off, off the plants. Yeah, right, that's and right. off the plants yeah. too. Okay, now I can see that. Yeah. I don't know if you can hear that, but there is very definitely a corn crake. Responding to another one over there, these two. And they often do this, they have almost duet. It'd be males kind of competing a little bit. And are they, what they're saying to each other is, keep away, this is my territory. Yeah, they're essentially saying, this is my patch, uh, I'm here, I'm occupying it. But at the same time, they're looking for females, of course. So the same message, I'm here, uh, come over and, and check it out. And you were saying earlier, so they, they will have one brood. Uh, what, has uh, that already happened? Has the so, first brood happened yeah, yet? Yeah, so basically uh, the females will be down on eggs right now. Right. Uh, possibly the first brood's actually hatching. Mm-hmm. So this is beginning of June. Uh, the birds have been here since mid-April, some of them. So if, if the early birds getting into good habitat can already have had a brood, you know, a clutch and hopefully a brood by now. And these males are now calling for their second mating. Right, okay, so they're looking to get on with it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and it's interesting because when they first come, it's mostly daytime calling for that first brood. But the second brood, it's all about nighttime calling. So what's going on there? Then? So d- not really sure. I mean, it, it, as you know, the nights are very short this time of year. This Yes, final. they so are, aren't they? It's amazing. We have about three hours of, well, it's not even darkness it's twilight yeah really. yeah uh, but that's when we do the census work because that's when the males call most consistently right because because in fact tonight you're going to be going out at 11 30 11 30 to 3 30 i think you said yeah so i head off at 11 30 yep. the official census time is between midnight and three right those are kind of core hours um i was out last night it was a perfect night for it got about uh 90 birds coming around the west side here yeah uh i've got a volunteer kathy shaw who helped me do it she was out last night too she got 19 at the east end Mm -hmm. and tonight we're gonna between us finish up the rest of the island Um, so you do it all in two nights yeah it used to take me three nights on my own right uh but now uh with kathy it it takes two but we do this three times Ah, right, okay. So we'll do this right at the beginning of June, mid-June, and then at the end of June, 
uh, and there's a fairly complicated way of looking at where the calling birds are, trying to work out if it's the same bird or not. That is a... This is a sedge, sedge warbler. warbler, literally just yeah. landed on the post. There he is, look at that. What a view. Uh, yeah. Noisy bird. And they sing all night as well here. They sing all night? Yeah. I didn't know that. And particularly if I stop the Land Rover when I'm doing my sur- survey, a little bit of noise and they respond, they immediately start singing like this, yeah. Is, he, is that kind of, he's responding to us? Yeah, I think by us being here and making a bit of noise, he's actually making a noise back. Another concrete. Is that over there? Or yeah, that's over in that bit. Should we yeah. go and yeah, go yeah, over sure. there? Yeah. Um, Okay, so how 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 many how many calling males do you have? Do you think on Tyree or his, you know from yeah. past years or whatever? Okay, so uh, the story we know about Tyree is that in common, even with the rest of the Hebrides, there was a a decline as there was on the mainland into the 80s and early 90s. And at that point, we realised that if we didn't do something soon, we, I mean RSPB and the rest yeah. of the conservation community, yeah. realised that we'd lose them for good. Yeah. Um, so that that's when we started coming up with ideas about what they needed. Yeah, uh, and then and did you have to do all that work? Did you? Uh, yeah, so yeah. obviously not me. No, not, but but in particular, uh, Professor Rhys Green is is the guru right. of corncrakes basically, okay. and he worked out essentially the life cycle, what what they need on the ground in order to do what they need to do. Yeah. So looking at this patch in front of us, we've got a lot of iris and and yellow yeah. flag, uh, yellow flag iris and yeah. also Phragmites reed along the, yes. the ditch there. Yeah, uh, this is we call it classic early cover. So yeah. when the birds first arrive in April. It's really quite cold here. Most of these silage fields are actually being they've been cut and grazed, and there's very little vegetation in them. Oh, so okay. they need something to come into yeah. to feed in, to hide from predators, yeah. and do what they need to do to call. So early cover is really essential. And then next door to that, you have silage fields which then grow up during the summer. And we now know that probably uh, the first broods are actually the first nests will be in the the early cover right and then the second nest tend to be in the silage that that yeah. seems to be how it works yeah okay there um, was something calling again wasn't it was. further away further that away was. that's a different one that's a different one yeah i'm really hoping they'll be in this field because right. they be much closer so we'll just have to wait and see um yeah so you need early cover you need the silage but you also need that silage to be cut late that that's yeah. the key and what, yeah. what uh reese green found was first of august seems to be an absolute key date if you cut before that numbers and area essentially will generally yeah. go down if you cut after that they'll be stable or go up particularly the later you leave the cutting and are you effectively paying crofters not to cut until august then yes that's exactly right <laughs> right so the, and there is a, a trade-off between the the quality of the silage that is produced it's not as good if you cut it later uh, uh, so okay. there's a, that's the trade-off it, yeah. it's being compensated for that that loss of quality in the yeah. silage yeah yeah right and, okay. and most people are keen you know ha- quite happy to do that they're happy to take a little bit of a knock on the quality but get hard cash yeah. in their hand you know but, right yeah uh, and does it does it make a difference that we're on we're obviously we're on an island and quite yeah. a small island yeah it, it it's important that they make their own silage. They can't just sort of get it in from somewhere else or it's harder or it, whatever. It, it's very expensive. Right. Uh, yes. Yeah. All, haulage costs are fantastically expensive right. for anything here. So, so yes, you've got to kind of produce it yourself. I, ideally produce yeah. it yourself. And people do sometimes run out and then they'll get hay coming in from the mainland in the winter. And right. it's, it's expensive compared right. to producing So you don't yourself. want to do that? No, essentially you don't. No, yeah, no. right. So, um, so 
Have numbers rebounded here as a result of the work you've done? Yeah, so interestingly, from the 90s onwards, that there was a steady increase once conservation measures started yeah. to be applied here until a peak about 10 or 12 years ago of about 400 calling birds. Right. So back in the 80s, early 90s, we were down to 120, something like that. Wow, uh, so you massively increased yeah, it. Yeah, so it's a really mm. big increase. But since then, numbers have kind of bit by bit declined mm-hmm. year on year. And we're not totally sure why. It might be a slight return to early cutting, uh, and that, that's definitely been a, an issue. Uh, some of the, the latest schemes haven't been quite as popular, these agri-environment schemes, as, as previous ones. So we need to get that right. We need to make people really want to go into these schemes. It's got to be really worth their while, essentially, mm. to mm. do the right things. But we had uh, 285 calling males last year. That's still a big chunk of the Scottish population. We have about a quarter of all the birds in Scotland right. here on Tyree. Yeah. So that, you know, it's quite a big responsibility. So I've, I seem to remember I've read, or at least, oh. It's going again. Sounds like it's further away. Do they move? Yeah, they do. That's right, the other so he's moving away from it, us. In the daytime they move. At night they tend to have one calling location, yeah. which they use uh, regularly, and it's often next to a building or a bank, so it really projects the sound. So it becomes right, you know, really interesting. Loud. Yeah. So it could be that it's the same one, he's just gone and gone, well, I'm yeah. going away from these This guys. one has shifted, I, almost certainly. Almost certainly, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> <I would> say, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's right. Um, but so... I'm sure I've read that they actually, the, the Latin name, Crex Crex, comes from the call. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, that, it, I mean it's always hard to put names or words to yeah. a call, but yeah. Mm. Okay. So I, I tell you what we haven't said is, um, what does a corn crake look like? Okay. So they're often more heard than seen, it's <laughs> fair to say. But when you do see them, they're like a small, slim moorhen, yeah. I, I would say. Uh, brown rather than grey. Yep. The, the males have got a little bit of blue-grey on the face mm-hmm. um, and they're quite slinky. If you see them crossing a road, they mm-hmm. tend to slink across like a, a little uh, moorhen or even a water road. Do they ever swim? No, as far as I know, they don't. Right. I've never, okay. never known of one swimming and they yep. very rarely fly. That That is a bizarre thing when you think that they've come all the way from Africa. But they do fly yeah. from Africa. But they, have to, they have to do that. <laughs> they don't right. swim from <laughs> Well, I hope not. Yeah, that would be a, a struggle. But the fact is they can do that and yet when they're on the island they very rarely fly they'd much yeah. rather walk across a road than fly um and they're not designed for flying if you if you if you <laughs> imagine it they're, they're the only time we've ever known birds actually arriving so that we know they arrive at night because you don't see them arriving during the daytime and they leave at night you don't, you don't see birds leaving here in flight but a colleague of mine was up on Kenavara one morning counting seabirds and had these two birds flying he said like like bricks you know flapping away really fast fat little birds what on earth are these and they dropped down onto the on the headland in front of him and they were corn crakes and that's about the only time i've ever heard of people actually seeing them flying in from their that's migration really interesting yeah. while we're waiting to see if this corn crake starts up again tell us a little bit about life on the island okay <sighs> okay i mean it's a we can both yeah. agree it's a absolutely stunningly beautiful island 
white sandy beaches, all that kind of stuff that yeah. you associate more with the Outer Hebrides in some ways. Very much so. Yeah. Um, so it kind of feels, it, it's always felt to me, and I've been here, this is my third time, mm-hmm. so I'm hardly experienced, but it always feels to me like it's the Inner Hebrides, but it's the Outer Hebrides kind of in the Inner Hebrides. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So Tyree is the outermost of the Inner Hebrides. It is, and, yeah. and it definitely shares uh, quite a lot of features in common with the Outer Hebrides. The, the, the amount of macha that we have, this, yeah. the shell sand, yeah. and, and the fact that it's so flat and low-lying means that that shell sand has been able to blow across a lot of the island. Mm-hmm. So we have about a third of the island is Macca, essentially. Right. Which and what is the ma- so I'm I'm seeing um, these these very short grasslands with lots of buttercups and yeah. daisies. Yeah, that's basically it. So that's that's Macca. Um, yeah. Macca essentially is, is any. Uh, vegetation growing on shell sand. Right. Okay. And, and I actually went to a conference where people almost, you know, came to blows about the definition of what maca is. It's, you know, it's quite a controversial thing. But it, <laughs> right. it's okay. really all it is is shell sand being blown across the island and allowing vegetation to grow up. In it's, it's a naturally fertile system. Yeah. That, that's the thing about Tyree. It's naturally fertile. Um, so it doesn't need massive inputs of yep. fertiliser. Yeah, right. sure, people put a small amount on the mm-hmm. fields. They also use uh, seaweed, which is a much yep. more organic thing, and also yep. put out muck. Plenty of well. seaweed around here. Lots of seaweed, yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's an it's a, a Outer Hebridean, Inner Hebridean island. It's, it's a mix of yep. both. And, of course, all, all islands are unique, you know, yeah. And yeah. All, all slightly different. Uh, it's a wonderful place to be, uh, particularly on a, an evening like this, early June. You've got all the birds singing. Concrete's not calling at the moment, but they will be. That sedge warbler again. Yeah, another sedge warbler there. Isn't it? He's just there, isn't yeah, he? He's just on the fence line there. <laughs> no pretense at hiding. No, no. Anyway. He's a noisy little thing, isn't oh, he? Yeah, he is. Um, but actually, uh, not quite the same picture if you were here in, let's say, January. No. No. So uh, it can be very, very windy. The fact that it's so flat and low-lying means that we get gales from all directions yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe not as wet as Mull or the mainland, but we still get our yeah. fair share of rain uh, um, yeah, and wind. So it's and a, so um, in the winter, you're not going to... What's what's your kind of daylight the worst to, to we're not too bad we're not right. as bad as Shetland or Orkney which no, is further sure. north so yeah. Um, yeah nine o'clock to maybe half past three to four yeah okay if it's, a dull, not, if it's yeah. a dull day then it, it feels feel, like it's less yeah. than that but it's not too bad yeah. and so it's about what 12 50 miles long is it mm-hmm. um, yeah. and there's 700 odd people here yeah you've yeah, got one right. school couple of shops yeah I mean, it always strikes me as a really nice, you know, classic, sort of tight-knit community. Everybody knows everybody. Certainly our friend Dot, who lives at the um, East End, certainly yeah. seems to know everyone. Yeah. Um, is that is that right? Is that how it is? Yeah, no, definitely. And it, it's a good mix. So probably about half the people here, or maybe just over, are uh, native born and bred Tyree people who uh, have Gaelic as their first language. Right, that's OK. That's still a big big thing here. And at the school, So will people speak Gaelic to each other in the pub or something like that? Yeah, at, yeah. or at home in particular. Yep. Um, it's a pity when we first came here, you'd hear it more regularly. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's definitely this thing where if you walk into a shop, people are speaking Gaelic, they, they switch back to English so right. that they you don't think, or they don't think that they're talking about you, if you see what I mean. I do, uh, I yeah. do. Which is very nice, but it means you don't really hear the Gaelic as much yeah. as you used to. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's a key part of the culture here. So that, that crofting group of people, it's a way of life. Um, and then we've also got maybe 40% of the island or so are people from elsewhere mm-hmm. who've come in. Uh, and it's a good mix. It's, yeah. it's you know, it's a, an accepting mix. Um and tourism is a big part of it too, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
So he's using that bank as a bit of an echo chamber. So right. Because kind of that felt m- lot yeah. much louder, oh, yeah. didn't yeah. it? And that, that's still the other side of the field. If you've got one down here doing that, it's really... Right. So, after spending the evening with John Bowler yesterday on Tyree, today I've come out to the island of Lunga, about, I don't know, five, six, seven miles, maybe ten miles, to the kind of east, southeast of Tyree. Um, And in case you haven't realised, this is renowned for its seabirds and I'm staring just across at a sea stack it's only 20 feet away and there are literally hundreds thousands I think it's 10,000 guillemots there's a couple of razor bills almost within touching distance of me there's a beautiful greeny gray no greeny blacky shag he's scratching his head with his uh, his feet and there's another one just below him or her. Um, and there are a few kittiwakes in here. I keep hearing them, um, but not seeing them, which is odd. But maybe I'm just not looking hard enough. But there are literally, there are just seabirds wherever you look. There we go. There's a ki- kittiwakes down there, right? They're sort of slightly lower down. Yeah, there are lots of kittiwakes down there. But really, it's the, it's the guillemots, really which I think are making the majority of the noise too. And it really is just the most spectacular, well, spectacle, spectacular spectacle. Oh, and what's that down there? Is that a seal or, oh no, no. That is actually a guillemot. Okay, got that wrong. Um, Lots in the water that is, obviously. Um, There are puffins here too, but they're in a, they nest in uh, burrows. In the, on the, not on the cliff face which is what the, most of the seabirds do so they're not here at the sea stack although actually I keep seeing there are a few puffins mixed in with the, with the other seabirds so maybe there's, uh, there's some grassy bits uh, on the stack and they must be nesting there too yes I can see one going into its burrow right now um, and the first thing when you approach actually the first thing that strikes you is not the sound or the sight it's the smell which I'm not going to be able to get across but is that ammonia sort of heavy smell of, uh, of bird guana, bird poo and it really is quite well it's, it's, it's quite acrid almost but I've sort of over the years having been to many many seabird colonies I've grown to quite like it because you associate it with this just extraordinary melange of, of, of birds and uh, yeah on its own it's probably quite horrid but I kind of quite like it Um, I'll leave you with the sounds now
So it's 6.30 or so in the morning. It's a beautiful sunny morning. And I've come out um, to record the sounds of another noisy bird on Tyree. And this, or these are common and arctic terns. And they're nesting on an island uh, in the harbour just opposite where we are staying. It's a good-sized colony. There must be, I don't know, 50, 60 pairs there at least. Um, uh, which is really good to see because terns generally are not doing well in this country. They're declining in many parts uh, because of lack of food probably, lack of sand eels that they need uh, to feed on and to feed their young. can also see seal out in the bay and some eider ducks three males I think and a female hard to tell at this distance completely there's a lot of oyster catchers around I'm hoping to catch them as well I'm hoping to catch get some of their piping calls I'll wander around see if I can uh, find a, a few oyster catchers There we go. As if on cue, out he comes. Really love that noise and I love oyster catchers. We, we were dri driving along back from having had a fish and chip supper last night and we managed to see He's a noisy fellow. I don't think I disturbed him. Yeah, we managed to see something I'd never seen before, which was oyster catcher parents and their chicks. There were two parents and three chicks and it was just the most beautiful sight. We watched them for about five minutes, just nosing around in the long grass, looking for little things to eat. And it really was the most wonderful thing. When the turns, the turns were all taking off suddenly, and you can see there's, there's a lot there. There's easily a hundred individual birds, I would say. It's really hard to tell, but there's a good number there. And they suddenly all take off for no reason. I can't work out anyway. Maybe they've been hassled by the gulls. I'm, I guess that's it. The other day I saw a gull had taken a, an oyster catcher's egg, or at least it looked like an egg. It was some distance away. But um, yeah, you could see it going off with something in its mouth and then it gobbled it down. And it was being hassled. I know it was an oyster catcher's egg, or at least I think it was an oyster catcher's egg, because it was being mobbed by a couple of oyster catchers. So that's why I presume it taken an oyster catcher's egg. It's certainly taken something.
He's flying right past me within 20 feet there. I think he's, I think he's responding to that gull, but I'm not sure. I say he, I don't know. I don't think you can tell them apart the sexes. Tyree is definitely one of those places that gets under your skin. It's, I mean, it's not just the perfect, beautiful, white, sandy beaches, though that they are amazing, and the and the amazing bird life, um, all the waders in the fields, nesting waders, turns the corn crakes. It's not just all that. It's just the sort of feeling of island life. You meet one person, you immediately meet more people. Everyone's incredibly friendly. The people who live uh, near our holiday home uh, have all been very friendly, um, you know. And, and you do kind of think, oh, wouldn't it be nice to come and live here in another, in another world or another life or something like that. Um, and then people, of course, go, ah, oh, but the winters. Some people say, ah, oh, but the winters. And some people say, yeah, winters are all right. But they are dark. Obviously, you get a lot of sunlight this time of year in um, uh, early June. feels like it's permanently light. It basically is. It never re really gets dark. And, and you're certainly, it's certainly, it's light from four o'clock, probably a little bit earlier onwards. And it's not dark at 11, that's for sure. So there's a lot of daylight. And then, of course, the converse is true. In the winter, there's not a lot of daylight, a lot of, a lot of nighttime. And of course, it's a very windy place, particularly in the winter. But even, we've been here in August and it was pretty windy then. But that is practically autumn by then. But um, yeah, there are a lot of challenges to living here. My goodness, it is beautiful. So there was James Fair ending that adventure on Tyree with a little bit of reflection on that whole thing where you go to somewhere wild and have a brilliant experience and think about, you head to the estate agent or look at the prices of property and think, could I live here? So some wise words, beautiful, amazing. But from, what he, from his beautiful descriptions and meeting John Bowler, who's that corncrake expert, just a fantastic place to visit and experience wildlife. Talking of fantastic wildlife, joined in the studio by Hannah and Jack, who helped me make the podcast. Um, hello, chaps. Hello. Hello. Have you ever heard a corncrake in the wild? Never. I've heard a cornflake. Cornflake, yeah. Not a corncrake. Similar noise, actually, crunching on a cornflake to uh, a corncrake. <laughs> yeah, crex, crex, crex. Crex, crex is its... Um, just two crexes, actually, is its Latin name. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, what it, what's, it was really interesting hearing so much of them in that podcast there that when James, or it was John who said they, 100 years ago they were in every single county of the UK and just, and now they're limited to these margins, fringes of the islands and edges uh, because of changes to agriculture and how we use the landscape. But we've lost that. That sound, that crex, 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 crex. Now, I don't remember a while back, Kenneth sent us some some sounds from 
another Scottish island. And he remembers as a child being paid to throw stones at the <laughs> concrete because they were so annoying. Um, so obviously it was, it's, it's not the most beautiful song, but I think it's, some, it's part of our, our sort of language as a landscape that we've lost. And it feels so painful that so much has gone. I should mention James's book because he has been around the country discovering wild experiences. He's written this book, 100 Great Wildlife Experiences, where, What to See and Where. And that's a summary of some of these great things like corncrakes, eagles, seal colonies. There's all sorts of amazing things, some big, some small. There's some insects in there, I think. he's. But it's really worth it as, as a guide to, even in Britain, there are these amazing things that you can catch up with. And so a book rec- recommendation this week. Now I've, I'm covered in mud. <laughs> um, I've just Not dashed. Not the first time. Yeah, um, I've just dashed back to the studio to be with you both. Obviously, I've been out. I've been out in the wilds myself today. Where have you been? Oh, phew. I'm glad you asked. Um, I have been out with the archaeologist and writer presenter Mariana Hota. Amazing. Up in near Avebury in the Downs, walking a bit of the Ridgeway seeing amazing ancient sites. She knows so much about that area. <gasps> she showed me some wild and wonderful stones and strange mounds and eerie places. I've got a sound of the week, which is unbelievable. We went to West Kennet, Long Barrow, and this is this sort of eerie snake-like mound on, on a ridge on one of these downs. And actually, from, the, from a long distance away, it doesn't look much, but as you get closer, it gets just looms and looms and looms and it's got these great stones that uh, sort of entrance stones huge great sort of sarsen stones and he goes we went inside and we were, i was really looking forward to interviewing to sort of talking to marianne inside the um inside the chamber but as we got to the opening of the chamber there was this sound coming out of someone drumming deep inside the barrow and doing a pagan ceremony so we're going to have to do it. was really spooky. I didn't expect that. Drums in the depths. Did you expect this? No. So I know that lots of people still use these sites because they consider them still to be... Spooky, huh? That is quite something. Yeah, are we are we lucked out there? It's, it, it was the rainiest, windiest day, so um, I hope we've got some good audio <laughs> elsewhere. I'm absolutely exhausted, but that was it's one of those things where you're out with a recorder and Marianne's brilliant. I mean, gosh, I could listen to her. She's the most generous person to interview. She just she also asks questions. And <laughs> we have a conversation. It's lovely, but she's so knowledgeable and so enthusiastic, and so. But then we had this just spiritual moment with this drummer in the depths and this ceremony. When will we get to hear the rest of it? Oh, well, I think this is going to go out in the new year. Amazing. With our season of, we're looking at um, sort of healing walks and mindful walks in the countryside. Some of the best walks at that really was a healing spiritual experience. I've got a clarification and correction to do with last Uh week's episode. (laughs) What Um, did you do? So, yes, Mayor Culpa. We we tasted the Supreme Champion cheese as awarded by the British Cheese Awards called Ashcombe, which is based on a French cheese called Morbier, 
And I think I'd sort of said something about mould in the middle. But actually, I looked into this and it's a really interesting... Well, I mean, stop me if I'm boring <laughs> you. Got, if, if, I'm, if, I'm, if, if you get cheesed off with this story. It's a cheese that they made, that they make in France by... I think it's the... They use the evening milk. So milk has different properties when uh, cow's milk at different times of the day. So it's cow's milk cheese. And so they used the evening milk, although it was the leftover from making another type of cheese called Comte. So they had this leftover milk in the evening, which they let sort of, they, they, they pasteurized, made, made into cheese. To preserve it overnight, they would cover it in wood ash and then they would add the morning milk to finish it off. So they had a full cheese. Ah, that's why it looks like a sandwich. So that's why it looks like Victoria Sponge negative. So yeah. it's got this... But but both sides of the cheese should be slightly different. So, corrections and clarifications. <laughs> After last week, I took my bit of cheese home and I gave it to my housemates. And we were all in the kitchen eating the lovely cheese and we even gave some to the cat. And everyone was absolutely delighted. And so that cheese that you all enjoyed and the cat enjoyed so much is called Ashcombe and it's made in Gloucestershire by the Kingstone Dairy. So brilliant, well done them. And well, glad to clarify how it's made. <laughs> um, anyway, if you want any more cheese questions answered, <laughs> or to get in touch with us, tell us about your own experiences in the countryside, what you like about the podcast, do get in touch with me, editor at countryfile.com. And the best email or sounds that are sent into us we will award a, a, a book prize. Do we have a cheesy, cheesy nature book? I'm sure there are books of cheese in the podcast. We'll library. have books of mould, won't we? Uh, Mouldy books. About mould. About mould. Fungi. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we do. There's everything in the podcast library. Join us again next week. We're out on another adventure. But for now, thanks to Jack and Hannah. Thanks to James and John on Tyree. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>